This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Okay, we are live. I am here with Sally Ann Martin publisher of The Clinic. You came on my show a little while ago now. I can't remember which interview episode it was, but you've been on the show once before, which is the point I'm getting to. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I don't remember when. I don't remember what I did yesterday, so I have no idea how long ago that was. It was a while ago, though. It was a while ago, yeah. Well, tell you what I tend to do is record with people and then put off editing that recording <laughs> so it doesn't come out for two or three months. But what we're doing for this week is now that season... 10 has ended season 10 jesus christ season 10 finished last week so this is my off season period if you like i always get someone in to give me a week off basically write me an episode normally it's bobby or lorraine or i'll do a random episode i don't know if i'm going to do a special this time you know my two parters the yorkshire ripper one i did took it out of me so much that was such an effort well, that's quite the, um, if you're going to do a big story, the Yorkshire Ripper is probably the big, one of the biggest you yeah. can do in the UK. Yeah, so in theory, I can only go, it can only be easier than that, right? Yeah, that's got to yeah. be the, one of the biggest. Maybe I will. This week, because we're recording this on September the 7th, so this will drop on the 14th, which is today, <laughs> for people listening. <laughs> That gives me two weeks from today to write a two-part special. So maybe I will. Watch no this problem. Space. If not, I'll just jump into season 11. But this is the first time a published author is coming to tell me a story. My mate Christian came on once. Now, he is in the process of becoming published. His first debut novel is with the publisher. I think it's with the editing uh, stage at the moment. He'll be back on when that publishes. But you're officially published, right? I am, yeah. Published yeah. author. Is that what you call yourself? I'm an author. I'm an author, darling. Um, yeah, <laughs> one out last um, October and my second novel's due out on the 31st of October, Halloween. What can you tell us about that? It's um, called The Curse of Hallowcroft. It's set in the north, as usual. Um, and it's around witchcraft, mothers and okay. daughters and witchcraft. Has it got a theme? I can't remember if we touched upon this in the interview, but I know you like to focus on your asylums and all that kind of stuff. You worked in one for a short period. Is that inspiration for you? This is set in a nursing home, and I mm. used to work in nursing homes too. So this is another mm. big spooky building and creepy village, the things I like. Yeah. Is it a one setting thing? More or less, yeah. It's mainly yeah. in the house. Yeah, I like stuff like that. Cool. October 31st, watch this space. But that's enough babbling for one episode. I'm not known for my waffling, maybe a little bit. But let's get straight into the story. So Sally Ann is going to read you this from her printed script that she printed on real paper. Got to save the trees nowadays. I'm going to hand it over to you and I hope you enjoy the story. This is the Okay, I've just asked you what it is. The cottage pottery. What is it called? The pottery the pot cottage murder. That's it. Over to you. Do you want me to give you some facts about Chesterfield? Do we need to yes, that please. So we're in Chesterfield, which is, uh, what's that class? 
Derbyshire, is it? North Derbyshire. It's 11 miles south of Sheffield. Okay. Why did oh, I'm thinking of Chester? I'm thinking of Chester near Liverpool. Other side. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So my facts about Chesterfield. Chesterfield is home to one of the oldest remaining pubs in England. The Royal Oak was built in the 12th century and was a former resting house for the Knights Templar. Mm. Number two, George Stevenson, the pioneering engineer who invented the locomotive engine, the rocket, lived and is buried there. Okay. Now, my sources, my reliable sources, Chesterfield Ghost Tours, tell me there was a murder at what is now the body shop in the town. Then a butcher's shop, the older butcher, put the younger butcher into a meat grinder and threw his head down a well on the same street. Now, my friend works there, and she reports lots of spooky goings-on in the shop, in the body shop. When did that murder take place? I'm guessing it's like 17, 1800s. Ooh, sounds Like grinders and butchers, and that's what it feels like. Mm. The award-winning actor John Hurt was born in Chesterfield and remained in Derbyshire until he was five. I did not know that. I found that out. John, name me some John Hurt films. Man. The Elephant, Elephant Man. Man. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah. I won't um, do an impression. <laughs> and the final fact, Chesterfield is most famous for, most people know it for, its crooked spire. On St Mary's Church in the centre of town, the 228-foot spire leans dramatically nine feet from the centre. You can see it from miles away. There are many legends around it, one being that the devil sat on the spire and wrapped his tail around it. Then the people of the town rang the church bells and the devil, frightened by the noise, tried to escape with his tail still twisted around the tower, causing it to twist. Uh, my dad had a much more basic explanation there. We just said it was shoddy workmanship, which is probably <laughs> what it was. Yeah, the so devil's story sounds like a load of bollocks, if you ask me. Well, that's kind of what he said. <laughs> that spire story is interesting because I was going to ask you, do you know what Chesterfield Town, I think they're called, do you know what their nickname is? Spy rights. Yeah, there you go. Spy rights. Yeah. Another yeah. fact for you. Yeah. It is Chesterfield Town, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Chesterfield. What league are they in now? League one, league two. No idea. Somewhere down there. The spy rights. I always wondered why they were called that. Yeah, now you know. Hmm. Right. You want me to start with the story? Let's the crack on, yeah. Billy Hughes. Billy okay, the Hughes. reason I've got a lot of detail about this is that there was only ever one interview done with the sole survivor of the incident of the horrific thing that happened. And she gave an interview a month after it happened to the Daily Mail and Linda Lee Potter. And my dad kept the newspaper, so I was able to read it. So there is a lot of detail in the story. I haven't included half of the stuff that was there. I've tried to make it much shorter. Um, it's the only um, telling of the story she's ever given approval for. And there have been books written since, and they have the family have stated that they have not, you know, given their consent for that story to be told. They're quite adamant about that. She told the story once, and she's never spoken about it publicly again. Yeah. And I believe there was a TV series going to be made in the 80s, and Julie Walters was going to play Jill Moran, the mother of the family. And there was a lot of revulsion about them retelling the story, so it was canned. Okay. Fair enough. So this is mainly coming from the source that she's put out there and she's happy this is, with this version yeah this is coming okay. from jill which is why we know what happened within the house you know it's not just supposition she was able to tell yeah. everybody okay okay so this is the murders of arthur and amy minton and richard and sarah moran 
Arthur and Amy Minton had been married for 40 years when the tragic events of January the 12th, 1977 occurred. In their earlier years, they had run a grocery shop in the Birmingham suburb sorry, of Hytus Heath. They had two daughters, Barbara, born in 1936, and two years later, Gillian, known as Jill. They were a very happy, loving family unit, maintaining a close relationship way beyond when the little girls grew up and left home. Jill adored her parents. Her dad, Arthur, would build her toys for her and a rabbit hutch. They wanted for very little. The only thing Jill ever wanted that didn't have was the garden because they lived above the shop. As an adult, her older sister Barbara moved to Paris, but Gillian stayed home, learning typing and taking an office job. This was where she met her husband, um, another one in the story, Richard Moran, who she described as a good-looking man with an Irish accent. At first, he was too shy to ask Barbara out, instead getting another office worker to do it for him. But things moved fast after that, and by the autumn, they were engaged. He told Jill he had no money, but he had energy and ambition and would work hard. And true to his word, he worked his way up until he reached the position of sales director and partner at Brett Plastics, earning the kind of money that afforded them all the material comforts they could want. The only thing that was missing in their lives was much longed for children. After trying for a few years, they decided to adopt. And being a stable and loving couple, it was only a matter of months before they were given a baby girl they named Sarah. Sarah grew up into a kind and loving little girl. And like her mum, she loved animals. They had a cat, a rabbit and two dogs who became Sarah's best friends. I mentioned how close the family were and nothing proves this more than when Arthur, Amy, Jill and Richard, so that's Jill, her mum and dad, her husband and obviously Sarah, decided to purchase a house together. When they found Pottery Cottage, they thought it was perfect. Enough room for an annex for Amy and Arthur, the parents, and that garden that Jill had always wanted. Now, Pottery Cottage is in Eastmore, which is a village just outside Chesterfield. I've driven through Eastmore many times. It's on a quite a main road into the town um, and it's barely a village. It's cottage, a couple of cottages. There's a pub called The Highwayman there. Um, but you wouldn't associate it with being like a cosy English village. It's not. It's like farmhouses along a busy main road. Their lives there were idyllic. Richard was doing very well at work and Amy and Arthur enjoyed living with their family, especially their now 10-year-old granddaughter, Sarah. However, that idyll was to change in an instant on Wednesday, January the 12th, 1977, when 55 hours of hell began. So I'm now just going to talk a bit about the perpetrator, the monster that is Billy Hughes. William Thomas Hughes was born in Preston, Lancashire in 1946. The eldest of six children, he did not fit the stereotypical first child mould of being the most sensible and overachieving child. It has since been thought that his parents were so busy with the younger ones that he fell by the wayside. But that said, that happens to lots of kids and they don't become the monster that Billy did. From a young age, Billy was getting into trouble. He was a bully, performed poorly at school and was incredibly antisocial with those around him. He left school at 15 with poor grades, taking a succession of dead-end jobs and sticking at none. It seemed for Billy a life of crime was preferable to hard work. As a juvenile, he spent time in detention centres for robbery and violence, his terrible behaviour worsening by the year, until in 1966, aged 20, he was jailed for assault. Spending just a few months in prison, he left and then, on leaving, met a younger woman who he married, and they had a baby and moved to Blackpool, which is, as for those who don't know, a seaside town in the north of England. Not surprisingly, his behaviour within the relationship deteriorated further, 
and he soon became incredibly violent to both his young wife and his daughter, and he engaged in numerous affairs. In 1976, he left his wife and child, lucky for them, and moved to Chesterfield to be with another woman, unfortunately for her, with whom he was also violent towards. However, it was in Chesterfield his crime suddenly escalated. In August 1976, he was out on the town and met a young couple in a nightclub. There was some kind of argument between the three of them and the couple left, not knowing that Billy was following them. He followed them to a local park, which I am assuming is Queen's Park. It didn't say, but that's the big park in the middle of Chesterfield, which has a swimming bath um, within it. Billy watched out of sight, hiding in the bushes as a couple had sex against the swimming bath's walls. Otherwise engaged, they didn't notice him approaching or the brick he held in his hand, which he proceeded to smash over the man's head, knocking him out. He then dragged the woman away to a riverside and raped her. Luckily, witnesses had seen him following the couple out of the club, so he was arrested and remanded in custody. He was transported to HMP Leicester. However, the police and prison service failed to pass over his previous records and he was made a Class C prisoner, which is low risk. Now, I found that really strange because they're talking about all the things he did before, you know, the, the petty crime stuff. But they do know that he's pummeled a guy in the head and violently raped a woman, yet he's still C-class, low risk. I wouldn't have thought that was low risk. but It'd be interesting to wonder what that criteria looks like. Yeah. You know, for the classes, because that's pretty violent crime, isn't it? Yeah, the only thing I can think of is it's a time thing. It was the 70s, and maybe they didn't look on GBH, which I guess that is what that is, and rape. I don't know how you don't look on that as serious, but I don't know. I think this is back in the days of it legally being, you could legally rape your wife and stuff yeah, back then, yeah. you know? So perhaps yeah. you're right. It could be a... If it's not murder, it's not that serious. Mm, possibly. While he was in Leicester, he told fellow prisoners regularly he was going to escape and kill his ex-wife in Blackpool. The inmates reported this, but the threats were ignored by officers and Billy continued to enjoy the benefits of a low-risk prisoner, which included working in the prison kitchen. So what could possibly go wrong there? In December 1976, he stole and concealed a boning knife, which is like what butchers use on the meat, something which was never discovered despite numerous, so they said, routine cell searches. On the 12th of January 1977, which is when the horror really began, Billy was being transported from HMP Leicester to Chesterfield Court. Now, we'd done this journey four times previously without incident, so the, the officers were getting a bit lax with him, you know, oh, Billy, he'll be fine. Um, so he travelled, believe it or not, in the taxi. He was in the back with one prison officer handcuffed on one arm, so he had one arm free. The other officer was in the front of the car chatting to the taxi driver. At this time in January 1977, Derbyshire was experiencing the worst blizzards for 15 years. The roads were treacherous and they had numerous holdups along the way. So when Billy asked for if they could stop the car and he could go for a pee, the guard uncuffed him and let him get out of the car. While out of the taxi, Billy removed the boning knife from his clothing. Again, he'd supposedly been searched beforehand, although this was questioned afterwards. And he went back to the car. It was only a matter of moments before he lunged forward and stabbed the guard in the passenger seat in the neck, then turned and stabbed the guard next to him. 
he ordered the horrified taxi driver to pull over. I mean, can you imagine that taxi driver, what must be going through his head? He's not part of the prison service. He's not a policeman. Just absolute hell. He gets them all out the car, drags the bleeding men out the car and leaves them and the taxi driver by the side of the road and continues in the car. But because of the weather, um, he crashes the taxi into a wall. So he's stopped. He gets out of the car and begins to make his escape on foot. It isn't long after this before the police become aware and a massive manhunt is launched. But the constant snowfall meant footprints were quickly covered and sent dogs unable to follow a trail. But before this manhunt had even begun, Billy already had his first victim captive. So Billy stood in the courtyard of Pottery Cottage. You know, he's looking for somewhere to go. He sees the lights on in this place, thinks, OK, I'll, I'll go here, see what I can do. He watches through glass doors as Amy Minton, the grandmother, is stood at the sink. He goes to an outbuilding and takes out two axes. And before Amy knows what's happening, he stood by her in the kitchen, wielding the axes. He says to her, I am wanted by the police, but I'm not going to hurt you. This was the first of many lies Billy would tell. Hearing his wife speaking to someone, Arthur Minton, her husband, enters the kitchen. And no sooner is he through the door when Billy strikes him, causing him to crash to the floor. Despite this violence, Billy continues to reassure them he's just hiding for the day and will leave when darkness comes. He asks how many people live in the house and proceeds to push the older couple in front of him to give him a tour of the cottage. On his way through, he wa- they watch as he disconnects the telephone. In the bedroom, he takes off his wet socks and puts on a pair from the drawer, presumably Arthur's or Richard's. Once back in the kitchen, he opens a drawer and takes out another boning knife and they watch as he slides it into his belt. Just after 3pm, their daughter Jill is heading home from work. Dee hasn't heard the news of this escaped convict, which is by this time all over the place, but is disturbed to see three police cars not far from the cottage. She dismisses it and heads down the drive. Surprised to find the kitchen door locked, Amy then appears and unlocks it, and as soon as Jill enters, her mum says, don't panic, Jill. Billy Hughes then comes into the kitchen and Jill spots the knife. Hello, Jill, he says brightly. I'm not going to hurt you. Billy then takes Amy and Jill into the lounge where Arthur has been told to wait. Billy tells Jill he injured two guards but didn't kill them. But he does know how to kill. And the message is clear. And as you can imagine, Jill's trying to process this, like she's come into this terrifying scene. But worse than that, she knows that her 10-year-old daughter is about to arrive home any minute now on the school bus. When Sarah skips in the door from school, Jill meets her in the kitchen and takes her to the lounge, trying to remain as calm as possible so as not to scare her. Come in the lounge, she says, we've got a visitor. His car's broken down and he's waiting for help. There's a brief moment of strange calm while the gathered group has coffee and cigarettes, possibly giving Arthur, Amy and Jill the false sense of hope that Billy can be civil. And Billy does this quite a lot throughout the 55 hours. He makes them feel comfortable and then turns it around again. He asks Jill when her husband Richard is home and realises that he might try to call and reconnects the phone. As soon as he reconnects the phone, it rings. Billy stands by Jill, making sure she doesn't say anything that alerts him to the police. And it's Jill's friend on the phone. She's calling Jill to warn her about an escaped convict in the area and advises Jill to call Richard immediately and ask him to come home. Jill reassures her she'll be fine and hangs up the phone. 
When Richard does return home later, he's obviously stunned and shocked to see the scene before him. They're all in the lounge now. Billy is behind Jill, twisting her arm behind her back, holding a knife to her throat. He says, if you do anything, I will kill your wife. Richard assures him he isn't going to do anything and lets Billy know he can get away. Wishful thinking. The story will continue after these quick messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. Billy then proceeds to cut flexors from lamps, the iron, the vacuum cleaner, and even the washing line. Ties each member of the family up, apart from Sarah, the daughter and granddaughter. He then uses a towel to gag them. Jill begs him not to do that to her mum because she has breathing difficulties, but he does it anyway. He picks up, you know, I think, I want to say he's five foot seven, Billy Hughes, I'm not sure, but he manages to pick up Richard in a fireman's lift, another grown man, and takes him upstairs to the spare room. He carries Amy to Sarah's room and moves Jill to the master bedroom, leaving Arthur and Sarah in the lounge. And that's part of Billy's plan all along. He separates everybody so nobody knows what's going on or what's happening to anybody else. Jill lays in her dark room, realises her ties on her ankles are fairly loose and manages to hop to the door. It's then she hears her daughter Sarah call out. Remember, her daughter's only 10. You know, she's a, a baby. Mm. He calls to her, don't be fooled, mum. He hasn't gone. He's just keeping very quiet. Sarah was calling out as Billy took her to Arthur and Amy's annex. It would be the last words Jill would ever hear her daughter say. Later, the phone rings and Billy rushes to get Jill. He ungags her and forces her to answer it. And again, amazingly, she manages to stay calm and she lies when she hears Richard's nephew's voice asking for Richard. She tells him he isn't home yet and hangs up the phone. Billy then takes Jill back to the bedroom, offers her coffee and even a cigarette which he holds to her lips before putting it down on the bedside table and letting it burn out. Then things take another dark turn. He unties her, orders her to strip and begins to take off his own clothes and he sexually assaults her. There's no record and obviously this probably wasn't something they wanted to print in the paper at the time of how serious the sexual, well, any sexual assault is serious, but I don't know how far it went. Um, But obviously horrific on top of horrific here. Because afterwards, Billy's quite tender with Jill. She takes the opportunity to ask about Sarah. He reassures her that her daughter is safe, as is her dad. Jill does not know, however, that at this point, Billy has already killed her father. He stabbed him to death. Right, this is the first. This is one of the strange things about this case, um, is that there were several opportunities where other people either came to the house or they went out the house. This is the first one. In the morning, a lorry pulls up to the cottage and Jill rushes to the window, as does Billy, who has come into her room to check on her. It's a county sanitation unit there to empty the septic tank. Billy orders Jill to deal with it and she goes to the door. As she goes to sign the receipt, she thinks about writing on it a message of help. Instead, in fear, she just signs her name and the lorry goes on its way. That's the first time somebody comes and nothing is done. Billy then orders her to call in sick to work and tell Sarah's school the girl is ill. 
When she was off the phone, Billy hands her the car keys and orders her to go and get the newspapers and cigarettes. Of course, Jill's stunned. Before she leaves, he reminds her he has all her family and she promises she won't say anything. So this is the second time. It, it's hard for us to believe, but we nobody can know, can know the fear that was in Jill's head body at this time. And he's got a daughter. Jill goes into town alone. She drives into town alone and buys the things he ordered, saying nothing to anybody for fear of what Billy might do. She even passes police on the moors on the way back, but feels unable to alert them. Again, fearing that them rush into the house. At this point, I think they all still think they can, Billy's not going to do anything and they can talk him out. Obviously not knowing he's already killed one of the family. While she's out, Billy moves Arthur's body so Jill won't see he is dead. Then he begins to feel that Sarah, the child, is also a threat to his plans. She could escape easily. You know, she's small. She's, you know, agile. Billy goes to her, stabs her to death and slits her throat. When Jill returns, he follows her to the bedroom again and again sexually assaults her. You know, this is some monster. It's crazy. Jill is able to go and see her mum and is obviously doesn't know about her daughter at this point, is able to go and see her mum and is relieved to see that Billy has removed her gag so she can breathe easier. And it's these small acts of kindness that give Jill hope that everything will be okay and that Billy's not quite as bad as she fears. She also goes to Richard, who is so tightly bound, his hands are swollen. Billy carries Richard downstairs and takes his gag off, orders him to call in sick for work, at which um, the secretary of the boss is very suspicious because Richard isn't as good at Jill as Jill at sounding calm in these circumstances, understandably. And so the boss does call back later because she said something wasn't right. Um, but Richard just assures him, I've got flu, I'm fine. You know, I won't be back in work at the moment. Billy moves Richard to the kitchen and starts to tell him he needs money. So the friend owes him money and he will take Richard with him to collect it. Then he changes his mind and says he'll take Jill instead. Jill at this point breaks down. She does not want to leave her daughter again. Remember, she's still not aware that she's already been murdered. Then it gets stranger. Billy gathers the three remaining family members, three remaining live family members, Jill, Richard and Amy, in a room and asks if they have playing cards. As Amy reads the paper, Billy, Jill and Richard play hand after hand of rummy, drink coffee, smoke cigarettes and chat amia amiably about who wins what. And, you know, it's quite a normal, you'd think, um, game of cards. It's thought that the two Morans, and one explanation for them being able to do this and these strange things of them going out and not telling anybody, is that they're gripped by what psychologists called automatic compliance a state that is fear-induced, but the victims do not feel fear at the time. They play cards, drank coffee. He asked Jill to make toast for everybody, cruelly adding to make some for her daughter, Sarah, and her dad, Arthur. He even takes a toast through to the annex, knowing full well they are both dead. Meanwhile, the snow is abating and paused police searches resume. They visit the Highwayman pub, which is just yards from Pottery Cottage, and they notice the lights are on at Pottery Cottage, but it's a last house to search. They're tired and they decide to leave it for the night. I think another thing that was um, in the inquiry after. Shortly after the police decide to leave Pottery Cottage for the night, Billy borrows a wig from Jill and tying Richard and Amy up again, leaves with Jill. He says he will leave Jill by the roadside and he will get away. So everyone again is hopeful this is it. He'll be gone. She's terrified every time she's alone with him. He's sexually assaulted her. 
As they drive, he lights them both cigarettes and boasts about what a great burglar he is. Still tries to keep the focus on her daughter, believing she's still alive. Suddenly, Billy announces they have to go back. He's forgotten a map he needs. Jill becomes hysterical, concerned that Richard might have freed himself and her mum and that Billy will be furious and do something terrible. But when they return, they're still tied up. There's no reason for their journey out or another one he takes later. It's just playing with them. It's making them think they're all going to get out. It's going to be fine. And then he comes back to the house. The final day of the horror began early. Billy ordered Jill to make them all lots of toast and once again went through the pretense of taking some through to Arthur and Sarah. He allowed Amy and Richard downstairs to eat in the kitchen where he made the next strange request. He wanted Jill and Richard to go out to town together without him to pick up things. Soup, Irish stew, camping gas and a burner, a tin opener, cigarettes and chops, adding chillingly, buy Sarah a nice present and make sure it's really nice. As they drive the car on their own, they speak in whispers. Later, Jill said it felt like Billy was always in the back of the car watching them. They were just in a state of terror. Richard wants to call the police at this point. He's had enough. But Jill is hysterical, fearing that police involvement will mean the rest of the family will be killed. They go to the shops and get everything on the list. I I believe they even, you know, they can see Billy on the front page of the papers as they go in the shops. You know, he's in the newspapers by that point. It's all over the Derbyshire Times. The shop assistant noticed nothing strange about them. Jill picks up an Enid Blighting annual for Sarah and they leave and return to the cottage, alerting no one to their terrible circumstances. Later that evening, after Jill cooks a large meal for them all, Billy insists that he, Richard and Jill, drive to his office to steal petty cash. They do and manage to find £210. When he gets back, they're relieved to see he looks like he's busily, busily preparing to go once and for all. Billy packs a case for himself and disturbingly for Jill too, again reassuring it, Richard and Amy that he will leave her by the roadside at some point. He got as far as Queen's Park roundabout, which is where the original, where he um, attacked the man and the woman while he was um, in court in the first place. He does a full circle and gets back to the cottage. Jill's now to wit's end, barely able to maintain her calm. He's no intention of going anywhere. He's just playing tricks with them all and getting a kick out of it. When they arrive back at the cottage, he orders Jill to wait in the car and tells her he's just going to go back in, pick up a map and change into one of Richard's suits. But in reality, he went back in and stabbed Amy and Richard. He stabs both of them repeatedly. Richard collapses and dies on the landing. He then washes up and returns to Jill, only to find she has switched the engine off to save petrol. Now the car won't start. Billy becomes agitated and orders her to go next door to get the help of the neighbours, school teachers Len and Joyce. Right, by now, understandably, Jill is unable to stay calm anymore. This has gone way beyond. When the neighbours answer the door, they see the state of her. She tells them Richard was tied up and to please hurry. As they stand there, they hear a voice call out in terror. It's Amy, her mother. Len orders Joyce to call the police, but as they have no phone, she'll have to drive to one. While Billy had been killing Richard, he had left Amy bleeding, but she'd managed to escape the cottage. Jill is ordered into the car with Billy, telling him Len is on his way to help. Then her mum, Amy, appears at the window. She's dying, gasping for breath. Jill is desperate, obviously, to get out to see to her mum, but Billy orders her to stay put, and she watches her mother collapse to the ground. For some reason, Billy then changes his mind and pushes Jill out of the car and begins scrabbling to bury Amy's body in the snow. 
all the while Jill is forced to watch helplessly. Billy then drags Jill on foot to another neighbour's farm with the intention of asking them for a tow. The farmer's wife, Madge, is instantly suspicious of the pair, now bedraggled, wet and dirty. Then she sees Jill's lips move as she mouths, help me. Ron, Madge's husband, goes to drive back to Cottery Pottage with Jill and Billy. Before he does, Madge calls him back to the house and tells him what she'd seen Jill mouth. After helping them start the car, Ron returns home and calls the police. Now, it took 30 minutes for the police to gather the backup they felt they needed for a man like Billy Hughes, who's obviously incredibly dangerous. Meanwhile, Billy was driving at breakneck speed when a car cuts them up and causes them to crash into another wall. It's a police car. Billy threatens to kill Jill if they don't hand over the car and not able to overpower him with just the two of them, they do as ordered, but immobilise the police radio before doing so. Meanwhile, the police have set up roadblocks and weapons have been released from Buxton Police Station. The police set up a roadblock at Raynone in Macclesfield in Cheshire, parking a bus across the road to block the way. They place um, police marksmen behind the cars to wait. Billy screeches around the corner in the stolen police car, cursing when he's forced to come to another stop blocked by the bus. The police try to talk him down, but he threatens to kill Jill, holding the axe above her head. He demands yet more things, including cigarettes and shoes. The police bring him shoes and move away. As he bends down to put the shoes on, gunshots ring through the air. Jill is pulled from the car by the police. Billy Hughes is dead. The first person to be shot dead by Derbyshire police and the first prison escapee to be shot dead in the United Kingdom in modern times. Later at the hospital, when she's had a little bit of time to recover, Jill is care- being cared for by kindly staff. Shocked and dazed, she's bathed before a visit from Superintendent Morris, who tells her everything they have found at Pottery Cottage. Jill replies, so there's no one left then. Superintendent Morris held her hand and said, no love, no one. Initial plans were devised for Hughes to be buried at Chesterfield's Boythorpe Cemetery on the 25th of January that year. However, news of this decision triggered fierce protests from local residents who did not wish him to be buried in the cemetery in the town where he'd caused so much pain. Residents vowed to disinter Hughes' corpse and several that refilled the burial site, which had been prepared for the funeral. Uh, There were changes then last minute. His body was later cremated and his ashes were returned to Blackpool, where his ex-wife lived. Um, I'll just finish with a little bit about Jill, because obviously Jill survived this. She was a sole survivor. She was only 37 when this happened. You know, she lost a mum, dad, a husband and a much-loved daughter. And I don't know how you continue your life after going through that, but she did. Um, She moved to another house in Derbyshire and tried to rebuild what was left of her life. She did this one interview with Linda Lee Potter, um, has never spoken about it since. And she was quoted as saying, I try hard. Some days I get up with so much anger inside me. I think I won't be beaten. I know the family are watching me, willing me somehow to be able to go on. She later married Richard's first cousin and they had a baby girl, but possibly unable to cope with the grief and the aftermath of those terrible events her second husband took to drink and 11 years later was jailed for threatening a local publican with a shotgun. And as far as I'm aware, Jill is still alive. The last research I could find her on her was in 2020 when she was 81 years old. So if she is still alive, she'll be 83 now. And that's okay. the story of the Morans and the Mintons. Ooh, Jesus. And there's so much more to it, so much more detail. It's just like, a, it's, it, it's a, I'm surprised there's not more known about it, but 
it happened in 1977 and we had another monster, the Yorkshire Ripper, active at that time. So maybe it got lost in that, but it's such a strange story and horrible. Yeah, you're probably right, I think, especially because it's in the north. People yeah. kind of focus it on, on that one, but it's the mind games for that that are just awful. That's proper psychopathy, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And it's it's so easy to say, oh, they had five, you know, why would you not, you're out with your husband, why would you not tell somebody or write something down? But they're just gripped by the fear and the hope because he sometimes gives them hope that if we can just do what he says for long enough, we'll all be back together by the night time. I mean, taking toast into that room, knowing that they're already dead is, that's yeah. evil. That, that's got to be there with the definition of evil. Yeah. But yeah, I mean... Just sending them to town to get some bits as well, just to ex- sort of show his power yeah. that he had over these people. That's really awful. And control and asking them to get a nice present for Sarah again. Oh, uh, yeah, that's bad. bad. Imagine, imagine that. They were probably thinking, oh, we've got to get her a good present. Maybe if it's not a good enough one, he'll do something to her. Yeah. We want to want to make her feel safe in this situation, not knowing she's already been killed. I think what's really freaked me out about the case is that, you know, you feel like you're safe in your home more or less. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Like he's, you know, where this is is, you know, it's re- nowhere in a blizzard, the middle of nowhere in a blizzard, and just all the muck-ups with the prison service and then not searching his cell and just being lax with him, where he happened to cry, you know, all those just circle of circumstances and events that led him to walk across that direction to that house. I don't, I don't know what the word, it's not bad luck, it's way, way beyond that, but it's just, yeah. Wrong, just, wrong place, it, wrong time, isn't it, really? Yeah. It's, the escalation's pretty bizarre because, yeah, he's done his petty crimes and stuff and he ends up attacking the guy with a brick and sexually assaults the woman, goes to prison. But to go from that to what he did after, and it's yeah. not just like a murder, for example, not that any murder is justified, obviously, but it's not like he's gone and killed someone that he knows in anger or in a, an emotional response. He's absolutely destroyed this whole family whilst playing mind games over a period of days. Yeah. Quite clearly, an escalation. Yeah, and clearly he just doesn't want to get away. He's not an escaped convict. He doesn't just take the money and run, take the car. He could have got away at any point. Yeah. He's, his motive is to kill and sexually assault and, have, like you say, that power over the family. It's an incredible show of human spirit and strength that she could get up day after day and try and rebuild her life. I think it's amazing. Oh, yeah. Incredibly strong woman. Well, let's hope if if she's still with us, let's hope she's doing well as well as she can because she'll undoubtedly have some sort of darkness going on inside her mind. How could you not after that? For sure. I mean, the only nice thing in it is that she did go on to have a daughter, another daughter. Yeah. Which does obviously clearly does not replace Sarah, but at least it gives her she had something to live for afterwards, a daughter. It's interesting as well because Sarah was adopted, right? Yeah. So they, they were having issues conceiving naturally, and then she would go on to conceive naturally yeah. with a daughter afterwards. So presumably it was the husband that had um Yeah, it could have been. Yes. Obviously it doesn't justify what happened, but if you if you're trying to find light in a dark situation, I suppose that's a little bit I always find that really sad as well. Obviously, any child death is horrific, but I just find it really sad as well that Sarah was adopted 
you know, so she didn't come from probably a great place. And this was her yeah. chance of such a loving family who adored her. And this, like, out of million, million to one thing happens to their family and then she loses her life at 10. It's just horrible. He's just a monster. There's no other word for it. Thank you for that. So that was the cottage, pottery <laughs> cottage murder. I, I don't know why I can't say it those is, words No, it's, it's a mouthful. The, the pottery cottage murders. I'll probably call this something else anyway, something mm-hmm. a bit more akin to reflect the strength of her, of Jill. But yeah, thanks for that. So this is, what day are we on? As of published day, 14th, your book comes out. Your next one on the 31st. Do we have a title? 31st of October, beg your pardon, we're in September. What's the book called? The Curse of Hallow Croft. That's the one, The Curse of Hallow Croft. Look out for that. But yeah, I appreciate you coming on and telling me that story. Thank you for giving me a week off writing. Still have to edit it, but that's fine. (laughs) It's the research and writing that takes the longest. And as of next week, people listening, it could be part one of a special or it could be season 11. We don't know because I don't know. But yeah, thank you. And we always say cheerio at the end of this. Anything you'd like to say before we close out? No. I'm I'm good chat. I'm not good at at thinking on my feet. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you for having me. You know what a fan I am. So this has been amazing to be able to do this. It it really is an honour. Thank you. Appreciate it. Right. We'll see you next week, everyone. Thank you.